0: Students come here for opportunity, and you have over 4,000 university choices, colleges and universities, so lots of different places for lots of different students that are trying to consume education. And then when they finish, they're in a position to get great jobs, uh, make a really good living for themselves, and elevate their family.
1: This and more in this new episode of the ISEF podcast, the leading global podcast series for international student recruitment professionals in all corners of the world. Be sure to subscribe via your favourite podcast player and join us for a new episode available every month. This month's main topic sponsor is International Education Evaluation. Our keys to the market sponsor is Western Overseas.
2: Welcome back everyone and thanks for tuning in to the December episode of the ISEF podcast. My name is Martijn van der Veen, Chief Business Development Officer here at ISAF and together with Craig Riggs, Editor-in-Chief of ISAF Monitor, we will kick off with some recent news and developments followed by our main topic this month titled The Enduring Appeal of Study Destination USA, Trans Facts and Figures. And we will conclude with our keys to the markets section where this time we zoom in on student recruitment from India or actually from the Indian state of Punjab to be more precise.
1: Coming up, the main topic of discussion for this episode. But first, as in each month, we kick off with a look at some recent news and developments in international education.
2: So welcome, Craig, to uh, our final podcast episode of 2023, uh, an eventful year with lots of news and developments to talk about and discuss as we have been diligently doing each month on the ISO podcast, and I'm sure 2024 will be no different.
3: I think we can expect that, and it's uh, hard to believe that we're coming to the end of 2023 already, but uh, it's fun to market with a with a new podcast episode. Absolutely.
2: Well, Greg, with the year coming to an end, let's take a moment to look at some of the trends of 2023 that we expect will extend into 2024. Actually, on ISAF Monitor, you listed uh, some of these trends. One of these, of course, is artificial intelligence. How can we not mention that one uh, on this podcast, as we have done already many times, and how it is moving into the mainstream, do you indeed expect recruitment professionals to embrace the wonders of AI going forward?
3: I think so, and we don't mean to say in the article that it's been widely adopted across the industry as yet. I don't think it has, but we can certainly see some really interesting early examples of how people are using AI tools to do their work more efficiently and more effectively. And the reason we expect that AI will become more widely adopted over the year ahead is that there's a very pressing Business reason to do so, which is that most institutions and schools are really struggling with uh, high volumes of student inquiries and even applications, and just you know being able to be responsive to be uh, to to process those inquiries and applications in a uh, in a timely way is a uh, is a significant issue for most international admissions teams and recruiting teams these days.
2: It's interesting to see how we all went from being very overwhelmed to understanding how this is actually making our jobs easier and provide us with higher quality, allows us to reduce time or even reduce costs. So I would agree there will probably be more use of AI in the
3: year ahead. I'm sorry, there are some wildly unpredictable aspects of AI. Let let us acknowledge that as well. We can't, honestly, this is the very early stage of this wider adoption of the technology that we're anticipating. But, But I think what is clear, and this is part of what we outline in the article that you're thinking of, is uh, there are some very specific applications of AI tools in international recruitment already. I think there's, you know, th- those are so clear and compelling that, uh, as I say, we expect wider adoption in the year ahead. Right. And we talk
2: a lot about these tools at ISAF Digital, of course, definitely worth uh, a visit, ISAF.com slash digital. I just had to drop that here. Uh, another <laughs> trend is, uh, is inquiry response time. Now, I do recall f- from ISAF Digital that 21% of prospective students expect an immediate response to their inquiry, immediate, with 62% expecting a response within, you know, the bit, they're a bit more easygoing, 24 hours, still really fast. Oh. How realistic is this in 2024?
3: Well, I think it's only realistic if institutions adopt some of those tools we were just talking about, realistically speaking. You know, it, most institutions and schools are dealing with very high volumes of student inquiries and applications, as they say. And so what, what can you do to, you know, and let's keep in mind that in the context of international recruitment, those inquiries will come through an increasing variety of channels. They will come at all hours of the day and night. And it's clear that students are inquiring of and applying to a larger number of institutions than was the case in the past. So if you are trying to identify and recruit the most capable qualified students from that very large pool at the top of your, your enrollment funnel, then this piece of, about response, this idea of responsiveness is really quite key. And what we see time and time again, anytime anybody does any sort of larger scale mystery shopping study, you know, where they pretend to be a student and they send out student inquiries and across a variety of channels to institutions and however many destinations, the response times are way, way below student expectations. And in fact, there's a very large percentage, and most of these studies are a very large percentage of student inquiries that go unresponded to altogether. So it's clear that institutions are having a very hard time keeping up with that student expectation. And But there it is all the same, right? You know, we live in an era of, you know, Everything is digital. Everything is on all the time. The st- student and consumer expectations are shaped by that context. And ever more, recruitment will be driven by the ability of institutions and schools to respond to students in a timely way, to identify the strongest, best qualified students from that pool of students, and to engage with them quickly and effectively and over an extended period of time. And so that's, I, I think we can't stress enough the importance of that, you know, as, as a kind of governing idea for a recruitment strategy in 2024.
2: Right, and there are digital and AI-powered solutions to achieve that uh, quicker response time.
3: Absolutely. I mean, these two these first two themes are obviously closely linked, right? Yeah. We're saying on the one hand, here's that student expectation. On the other hand, it's clear that institutions and schools are struggling with volumes of inquiries and applications that they're getting. and But on the other hand, here are some tools that you can use to help move through that workload more, more quickly and efficiently. Right. There
2: are more trends, of course, that uh, that will continue in 2024. But the final trend I wanted to highlight is a very important one, affordability due to the rising cost of studying, accommodation and, and living. This was already a serious concern in 2023. What's the outlook for 2024? Not so positive.
3: <laughs> it's, I, I think we can expect continued upward pressure mm-hmm. on prices in most consumer categories in 2024. It seems that, you know, there's evidence that, uh, the, that some of that inflationary pressure is easing as we turn the corner into the new year. But 2023, certainly, and, and through 2022 and 23, we have seen significant increases in, uh, in prices. So, you know, across most consumer categories, especially housing, uh, especially uh, travel, Uh, also uh, food costs, all of that. And of course, those are all highly relevant to international students. And so for students, what that means, uh, plainly and simply, is that study abroad has become more expensive over this past year. And, you know, I think that that we have seen a greater and greater, certainly we've talked about this before on the podcast and otherwise, we've seen a greater and greater emphasis on affordability over the last few years. Coming out of the pandemic, uh, there's much more attention to cost of study, return on investment from study abroad, and career outcomes and otherwise for for students once they earn their qualifications abroad. And so this continued upward pressure on prices is again another, what we see it as a really important market shaping factor for certainly for this year and for the year ahead. And there's already some evidence that it's affecting student decision-making. We had a story on ISAF Monitor this week, for example, where we're looking at some very interesting research from idp which was in the field in this in summer 2023 over july and august 2023 and you know this is a survey a student survey that they run on a recurring basis and so they're able to compare findings from one year to earlier years and in this case they were very explicitly comparing findings from summer 2023 to the same period in 2021 and what they found is that uh, over that time to- over between those two years the percentage of students that said they most preferred to go abroad and to study in person at a campus abroad had declined by 10%. And when you look at where that balance shifted, it was shown in an increase of students saying that they would prefer to pursue studies at a branch campus or at an accredited partner institution in their home country, right? And that's you put that alongside this pressing student concerns about affordability, and it's hard not to imagine that cost of study plays a part in that uh, in that trend and so you know we often talk about the fact that you know for every student that gets on a plane to go and study abroad there are several others that are be- standing behind them that would like to do so but they can't because of family obligations or financial constraints or career responsibilities and the, the research we're seeing, that we're seeing this year suggests that that trend is becoming a little more sharply drawn. Certainly, still, the majority of students will go abroad uh, to study in a, in a foreign country, but there is a growing proportion that uh, are expressing that interest in pursuing in international qualification in their home countries.
2: Right. And that, of course, creates also other opportunities in terms of different study destinations online learning, hybrid learning, branch campuses, TNE. Lots to talk about also in the new year ahead, so do stay tuned for the monthly ISF podcast which, just like the trends we just discussed, also continues in 2024. On to our main topic, which was recorded live at ISF Miami. I'd like to apologize in advance for a slightly reduced audio quality as we didn't have our usual hardware set up, but I'm confident that you will enjoy the conversation about the enduring appeal of Study Destination USA.
1: Up next, the main topic of this month. The Enduring Appeal of Study Destination USA Trends, Facts and Figures But first, a brief message about International Education Evaluation Evaluation with the Experienced
4: At International Education Evaluations we pride ourselves on lowering the barriers in international admissions by providing evaluations and translations in three days or less In 2023 alone IEE has partnered with over 2,000 institutions nationally and over 800 agents globally to help over 40,000 students who are applying to study in the US. IEE focuses on pricing, customer service, quick turnaround time, and technology to help international applicants achieve their American dream. Services including Slate Integration, Secure Digital Institution Portal, and customizable landing pages are available to all partners. Now with our new benchmarking methodology, we can help students with three-year degrees accomplish their dreams of graduate study in the U.S. For more partnership information, please email us at partnerships at myiee.org.
1: And now for the main topic of this month, the enduring appeal of Study Destination USA, trends, facts, and figures.
2: The United States have long been one of the most popular study destinations with students from all corners of the world dreaming about studying and living in the land of the free, the country of endless opportunity. In the 2022-23 academic year, that dream came true for more than 1 million international students from over 190 different countries who effectively enrolled at a US higher education institution, a 12% increase compared to the previous academic year and the fastest growth rate in more than 40 years. And that number doesn't even include the vast amount of youth and students involved in language programs, culture exchange or work and travel. And what is remarkable, the United States' appeal as a study destination doesn't seem to be affected by shifting global trends, political uncertainties, competition from other study destinations, affordability issues due to inflation and challenges in the area of student accommodation. The country continues to be extremely popular among international students. So in this main topic, we will look at the enduring appeal of Study Destination USA. What are the main factors behind its popularity among international students? How does it compare to other destinations? What is the outlook for the future? And how important is the role of study abroad agents in US-focused student recruitment? We are discussing all this live here at ISF Miami, where more than 750 US-focused international education professionals have come together to meet and network. And as it would be a bit much to invite all 750 to this podcast, I have found three industry experts to join me today for this main topic. Welcome Mindy Herzog, International Trade Specialist at the U.S. Department of Commerce, Mark Kopensky, Consultant to the Vice President of Enrollment at Rowan University in Glassboro, New Jersey, and my colleague Ian Kahn, Vice President Americas at ICEF. Can you please provide a brief introduction, especially some insight into your affinity and experience with today's topic, Study Destination USA? Mindy.
5: Thanks. Big thanks to ICEF and Ian for inviting me to take part in this podcast and for hosting the U.S. Commercial Service at ISF Miami. My colleague with me today is Isabel Davila and I. We're having a wonderful time meeting agents and U.S. institutions. I'm a trade specialist with the U.S. Commercial Service based in Orlando. I'm also a member of the global education team at the International Trade Administration, which is a part of the U.S. Department of Commerce. So myself, my colleagues, we're located throughout the U.S. We also have amazing colleagues in the U.S. embassies and consulates throughout the world. We serve as a resource for U.S. exporters, including intensive English programs, private high schools, community colleges, four-year colleges, and many more. Within that, we work closely with the U.S.-based educational institutions to assist with and offer customized programs and to foster U.S. educational service exports. As I mentioned before, I've attended several universities and colleges and community colleges throughout the U.S., so big fan of the, of the U.S. education system.
2: Excellent. Well, glad to have you on the podcast, Mindy. Thank you very much for joining and thank you for being here with us in Miami. Over to Mark.
0: that was overwhelming what can I say (laughs) well this is let's see 37 years in the business and um, it's been very easy for me over those decades to sell the American dream which I think is very much alive and hopefully we can get into it today because that's why kids keep coming Um, so I'm really happy to be here I at least 10 years Mm -hmm. uh, and my gosh US Commercial Services I encourage all of the universities I work with to work with them. So I'm really pleased to meet Mindy and sit next to her. Just as pleased as Mindy is, I'm sure. 37 years, uh,
2: Mark, that's probably a little bit longer than Ian.
6: Yes. Um, well, look, you know. <laughs> 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 he's a better shape.
2: Well, you know, it's a podcast, so you know people have
6: to look him up on LinkedIn, I guess. But go ahead. Ian. <laughs> Fifteen years in the industry, roughly, and I think about thirteen years of that with ISEF now, working predominantly with U.S. institutions, a little bit with the Canadians as well. So I've been um, privileged to work with lots of good schools in the U.S. who recruit a lot of students. Um, I've seen a lot of challenges and challenges overcome in that time. Um, I think that there's still so much potential for U.S. institutions to recruit international students and one of the challenges is that the USA is number one. And so I think for a lot of people they say we're number one so why try harder? But I think there's so much more we could be doing.
2: There's so much more and usually when you're number one it's probably quite a tough Battle to stay at that number one position, although the US has been in that number one position for a long time, so probably it's a good moment now to start with, what is it really that makes the US such an appealing study destination? I can think of a few things, but I'll let my experts uh, talk about this, Uh, Mark, why don't you start? Well,
0: you know, again, back to the American dream, Um, you know, students come here for opportunity and you have over 4,000 university choices, colleges and universities, so Lots of different places for lots of different students that are trying to consume education. And then when they finish, they're in a position to get great jobs, uh, make a really good living for themselves, and elevate their family. And I, you know, what I didn't say in the introduction was, is I spent 15 years in the UK and I worked at the American University there, also selling American education, but in London. And the opportunities after you left school in London were nowhere near as great as they are in many, many places in the U.S. So to come here, spend two or three years working afterwards and then parlay that into a career, that's unmatched anywhere in the world, frankly.
2: Wonderful. So the the vast opportunity in terms of uh, institutions, 4,000, you said, that's indeed an impressive number, of course. Then the employment opportunities. What else would you add to that, Mindy?
5: Um, I would say that, you know, students come here because we have such special study programs. You uh, need clubs, sports, uh, great internship opportunities. Um, and then, of course, outside your studies, there are historical landmarks to visit, local cuisines to taste, um, and you meet students from all over the world. So very diverse. diverse Academic
2: program. Absolutely, Well, I mentioned, I believe, in the introduction, indeed, what was it? More than one hundred, one hundred ninety-five countries, which is probably all the countries, and the world sent students to the United States for the reasons you just described. Mm-hmm. What would you add to that,
6: Ian? I think the the brand of the USA is still the strongest. You know, um, there are countries, the UK, Canada, Australia, that that do their best, but none are as strong as the USA and I think if you go out and speak to young people today the soft power that the USA has still st- shines through and it is just that place to be right and I see that and I see it still working but again there are challenges and I know that the UK is is really competing hard Canada's done so well in the last decade Australia post covid bounced back very strongly when they opened their borders again so Yeah, number one, lots of challenges, but but the students clearly prefer. Keep coming.
2: Yeah, well, lots of challenges indeed. I mentioned a few earlier, right? So you have the uh, shifting global trends, political uncertainties, competition from other study destinations, as you just mentioned, Ian. Affordability issues. It's not cheap to study here. Challenges in terms of accommodation. Topics like sustainability, climate change—they all have an effect on international education, whether in the U.S. or in other countries. How does it impact the U.S. in particular, Mark? I'm sure there is some uh, some sort of impact.
0: Well, I mean, we're we're all struggling with these issues, right? But, you know, to Ian's point, you have people from all over the world—not just students, but people wanting to come to this melting pot of a place. So they're all contributing. I mean, look at some of the most famous people in the U.S. society right now. They're not, they weren't born here. They've come from other places. I mean, I'm thinking of um, Elon Musk right now, who is kind of rewriting um, history at the moment. Uh, And, you know, they are trying to tackle all of these things. You talk about climate change and... You know, all the work in science that's being done, much of it is being led by people in the United States, but not necessarily Americans. The Um, the
6: CEO of Google is also a former
2: international student, I think. There you go. Yeah, Yeah, there's many of those. Many of world leaders are former international students, of course. And this is
0: that soft power, right? And I I think whoever's in office, because the, the other piece, which hasn't been talked about very much, but I think about it every day in my consulting, is um, we're in an election cycle now, and it's going to really get hot and heavy this summer, and someone's going to get in the office and change things. It could be a big change, or it could be you know maybe not so big. But um, you know these issues are, are front and center, and, and hopefully our colleagues at universities will be discussing what the impact of those things are going to be. But there's definitely going to be an impact.
2: Um, Gosh, politics, now that's always an interesting topic uh, with lots of opinions there. Now, politics of course has an impact on the image of a country overseas, to other to other countries, to prospective students. Uh, political change can have an impact on the choices of those students. How do you forecast the uh, the elections, uh, Ian, coming up impacting students, mm-hmm. the insecurity of not knowing what type of president, what type of regime will be here? Will that impact the study, yes, the decision making? Yes, we've
6: seen it. And if, if you know, let's be blunt. If Trump gets re-elected, it's not good for any of us. Yeah, um, it's going to be just not good for the USA. I would, I would like to add. I, I hope I can be so honest as, as saying my views there. It's very clear. It'd be bad for business.
0: But you know, I will say this because I travel around the world a lot. <clears throat> there are countries and leaders in other countries that resonate with this whole Trump appeal. I mean. You don't have to go any further than India. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that Modi and Trump are on the same page. And that may not be my politics, but that's going to be important for the U.S. because India is the biggest sender of students in the world right now. And certainly if that were to collapse, it would be a big problem for U.S. higher education. So I don't think it's all one way, but I agree with you. I worry about it a lot, and um, we're having conversations at Rowan and New Jersey and many of the other schools I work with. What happens if Trump is in office, and how do you pivot? Because it is possible that the Middle East could be closed down, uh, the optional practical training goes away. I mean, these are all heavy impact things.
2: They are, they are absolutely, but this may be interesting to okay. to discuss then, how does education fit into the U.S. policy, mm-hmm. Indeed. <laughs>
4: mm-hmm.
5: Thanks for asking me not about any of the politics <laughs> 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 <that> yeah, <there's, laughs> well I'll say that the we have a national export strategy, um, which is a whole-of-government approach to programs that help American companies, workers compete in the global markets, and that includes education as well. And it's made, you know, international education, it has been highlighted in the strategy, and it's it's important. Whether whoever gets an office next year, we will continue be following this strategy. And, you know, part of it is we have some, you know, in the strategy, it's connecting U.S. institutions, and consortia with the foreign groups interested in the U.S. education, so encouraging them to come to shows like ICEF. And so that's going to continue whoever's in office, right? You know, we're going to continue highlighting the importance of international education as a U.S. export. It's one of, it's actually the eighth largest export in the U.S., so $40 billion in the U.S. economy. So again, the num- you know, the numbers there, uh, whoever's in office is going to support continued um, support international students coming, it's coming to the U.S.
2: <laughs> such an important income stream, of course. But correct me if I'm wrong. What is surprising about the U.S. when compared to other destinations like Australia, Canada, France, Germany, and the U.K., for example, is that you may have this strategy, but there's no national strategy for international education specifically. Probably because the U.S. has not had to compete as intensively for international students as other countries have. But over the past decade, those other countries have gained notable market share of international student mobility. I believe, Ian, that in your presentation yesterday, you showed that the US has dropped from just under 60% share of the big four study destinations in 2000 and the big four that is, of course, US, Canada, UK, Australia, to around 40% today, losing almost 20% share to the other three. So, you know, US still number one, very popular, more than a million students here. But it does paint a little bit of a different picture about the appeal of the US compared to other markets. So it seems, I guess, Ian, that it's about time for the US to have that national strategy for international education.
6: Indeed, it would be very welcome. It would be. Um but I, but I think if it is happening, which I, which I understand it is, it needs to have teeth and we've seen countries, the others in the big four, um, they don't just have a national strategy but they put funding behind it. Um, the government provides funding for those institutions to go out and meet people and, and market their institutions and that does require an investment um, and, and we've seen that it works. Um, my fear is that in the US we've, we've talked a lot about all the good things we can do, um, but we've never really backed it up with resources.
2: Well, it's good to see an initiative from within our industry. I've heard about an initiative titled the US for Success Coalition, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with the goal to create a proactive strategy to successfully increase the number of international students who study in the US from all regions of the world and who can work in the US post-graduation. Some of its members are NAFSA, Shorelight, uh, IIE, World Education Service and some others. Um, w- have you heard about this initiative, uh, Mark?
0: I have and I, I, just to add on a little bit here, I, I mean you know we do have. US commercial services, we have Education USA. there is considerable money being being spent as many can certainly tell you. But you have to understand the context of these other countries. They're really maybe one or two dimensional at most. Most of them are uh, government-sponsored schools. They don't have the diversity and the autonomy and the just mass of the U.S. market. Over 4,000 institutions of all stripes, public, private. So trying to manage that Borg, if you will, is much different than, you know, what 60 schools in the UK, almost all of them are public, government-funded institutions. Much easier to manage a British Council-led yeah. national strategy. And you know, one of the hallmarks of the US is just this total freedom. And you know <laughs> sometimes that can go too far, but you try to get a government organization to corral 4,000 institutions, that's very difficult. Um, I think if there is pain coming at some point where you see the UK or Canada or Australia or any number of these countries starting to take the lead in this position, certainly you know U.S. commercial services and other organizations in the government will step it up. Um, Right now, $40 billion is a big number. I mean, if you compare that to what the UK is taking in, Australia, Canada, Mm. I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, but I suspect you could add all three of those countries together and you wouldn't get to 40 billion. So obviously I'm pretty pro-American here, but, um, you know, they are doing a lot. I mean, the, the folks in commercial services, a lot of money supporting U.S. universities, and frankly, U.S. universities don't know enough about U.S. commercial services. Part of what I do is try to introduce them to that and take advantage of what they're offering
2: one of those initiatives is, of course, USA a USAA Study Destinations. What can you tell us about that, Mindy?
5: Yeah, so a few years ago, we launched um, USA a Study Destination, which was, you know, a government campaign to really boost U.S. education exports by promoting the U.S. as a pre- premier destination for international students to to study, and we continue with that. So. We host, you know, annual, biannual roundtables to talk about the opportunities and challenges for educational institutions. You know, we're leveraging the assets not just across the country, but like, you know, nationally, but also regionally and locally. So we connect them to, you know, local airports to talk about where new routes are getting be, gonna be so that we can say, oh, there's a new route to this country why don't we start recruiting there? So, you know, we're constantly kind of bringing the whole community together to, to support the U.S. institutions.
2: Right. So these are great initiatives to support international education into the United States. Um, but Ian, how important is the role of study abroad agents then in U.S.-focused student recruitment?
6: Um, the role is growing. Uh, I think the USA has been one of the countries that's been slower to adopt agents as part of their international enrollment strategies. Um, but certainly, we're seeing it. You know, we're here in ICEF Miami. We have two hundred and fifty odd schools that are clearly very actively engaging with agents, and we've seen that number increase over the last decade. I believe it, this is a simple answer to your question is that if you want to capture the entire international student market, then you have to use agents. If you're not, then you're opening yourself up to maybe forty five percent of the market only.
2: I see Mark nodding along.
0: Well, it, it's an interesting. I mean, we could do a whole podcast on this. Let's do it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, again, (laughs) the the U.S. is a big system, and in many cases, these institutions in this particular space don't act very commercial at all, which is uh, very mind-blowing for people looking into the U.S. because they see, especially university athletics in the United States, it's a huge business, (laughs) there's millions of dollars changing hands. But in this space, uh, college admissions offices are very conservative. And I, you know, I work with several clients that would never work with agents just because of the financial transaction involved in this. I mean, fundamentally they can't get beyond that. And of course, you know, as Ian said, in the UK, Australia, these other places, they've been working with agencies for 30 or 40 years. Um, still others are just learning what this is all about. And, you know. Back to commercial services, you guys got to put me on the payroll at some point. Um, You know, they do a lot of great vetting in countries around the world to try to help U.S. institutions get their hands around who to work with. Certainly going to an ISIF event where you could meet, I mean, I've spent the last two days doing nothing but seeing agents all day long, I'll see 61 agents while I'm here. I mean, where could you do that in, you know, probably at least 25 countries? But there's still a warming to this. We've run into some issues where, you know, potentially they wanted to legislate against against this. Of course, in domestic recruiting in the US, um, you technically cannot use third parties to recruit students for you for a fee. Um, You know, I think that line is blurring a little bit now, but um, it just has not been historically something, you know, schools have done. I believe you're right indeed from a national perspective that you cannot use that third party
2: but you can use agencies for international recruitment and of yes. course it's important that you uh, apply responsible recruitment with agencies that are of specific uh, quality and experience and background. Um, maybe and you can say us a little bit about the quality of agents that are here at the, uh, at
6: the event. Sure. Um, every agent that's here has supplied us with a minimum of four references from institutions that they've worked with. And we've followed up on those references to make sure that they are genuine and that they are positive. So that's the the, the base upon all of our screening program is is based on. That allows an agent to attend this event, for example, but it doesn't um, maintain his status with us. We have now a new tier called ICEF Agency Status, or IAS, which allows an agent to actually have a credential. And we've uh, we've created a badge with a QR code, which links to a credential based on a blockchain. So that agent can show whether it's potential partners, uh, students, families. Um, here, scan this code and it'll take you to a certificate that's secure, that can verify who that agent is and that he's of ICEF standard. And the beauty of it is that we can adjust that on our end whenever we need to. So, if it needs to be revoked, it can be revoked instantly.
2: Quality is so, so important. And of course, interesting to see also what you just mentioned about so many students using an agent. It differs per country, but I believe in China, 60% of students use agencies. I think in the United States, 45% of institutions roughly use agents for their recruitment. So they're a very important recruitment channel. But you know, when we talk about numbers and data and insights, statistics on the, on the US, uh, Mindy, where would one look to see the data on international students coming to the USA?
5: Yeah, so, um, you know, NAFSA has a really good tool to look at the numbers um, and our actual um, agency has created a dashboard on Power BI, which uses um, Bureau of Economic Analysis data, SEVIS numbers, UNESCO data to show trends and where students are coming from uh, overseas. And it breaks it down by education level, gender, um, and this is all free online. Um, it's it's a wealth of information. So I would, you know, an ICE, of course, has an uh, enormous amount of information on the market insights as well. So I would say all of these things is, is good for educational institutions to look at to figure out where their recruiting efforts should be. Um, the other thing which most people um, don't look at is their own website analytics. So I'm always surprised when mm. I talk to schools and I say, Hey Mark, when was the last time you looked you talked to your webmaster and said uh, you know, hey, hey, look at those numbers. Where are the where are the hits coming from?
0: Maybe what's the chap out in Seattle's name that does that T- for Tom you? Mead? Wonderful <laughs> guy. Oh my God. he right? you know, yeah. will lose you in data. Yeah. But he yeah. is brilliant. Yeah, super guy.
5: Yeah, I can tell you I'm some, so right. you know, some of the schools here, I said, have you looked at your data? And they're like, no, no. I said, well, you know, ask them when you get back to, mm-hmm. you know, to campus and say, where are the numbers coming from? Because if you see, wow, I have a lot of, you know, visits from visitors coming from Nepal, then maybe that's where you should be finding agents and right, <laughs> looking right. for, for recruitment partners. So, so yeah. Actually,
2: yeah, data is, of course, so important. Um and facts and figures uh, just to adjust your recruitment strategy to, um, to the right numbers, indeed. Um, now back to the main topic, the enduring appeal of Study Destination USA. We talked about the strength of this, this market, its brand image in the world, uh, the dreams of so many students to come here for various reasons, the diversity, the, the choice of education institutions, the different cultures that are here, the employment opportunities, and at the same time we also walk through some of the challenges that you know most study destinations are dealing with. Um, what's the outlook for the United States, uh, Ian? If I would ask you,
6: that's tough. Um, it's I'm a, sure you it's have a, a view. It's a choppy, choppy mm. waters out there, but I would say it's positive. You know, ev- th- everything's trending upward. Um, much of it is driven by India right now, which I think is <clears throat> great, but is also a concern because you know one day. Um, that could suddenly change and that one market disappears and then where will we be? So when we look at the numbers we see India um, uh, going up very rapidly, China's decreasing and set to keep decreasing and that's a real concern um, and then um, numbers from the rest of the world are not particularly exciting at this moment in time. So. Um, My advice to US educators is you do need to diversify. Yes, focus on India right now because it's so hot, but you need to start looking at emerging markets that are going to supply uh, healthy numbers and growth over the coming decade. They won't give you anywhere near the numbers of of India or China, but you're gonna Mm -hmm. need them in order to have a healthy recruitment funnel.
2: Right, diversification in your recruitment strategy. Mark, what's your outlook for for study destination USA?
0: Well, I agree with what Ian just said. Throw Saudi Arabia in the mix because Mm -hmm. five years ago we had 70,000 students from Saudi Arabia and almost all of them were fully funded by the government. That's a huge hit to American higher ed because you had mentioned that U.S. higher education can be expensive when you have a government paying for all their students to come free. You know, frankly, schools were surviving on that income, and uh, now we're down to, I believe, under 20,000 students from Saudi. So that's a big hit. We we have to have China come back. It's just... You know, you mentioned that number a little bit over a million. Well, you take India and China away, mm. and to Ian's point, you've got a couple hundred thousand students. If you take away OPT as well, you've got a whole lot less. <laughs> well, this is my big concern. Yeah. Um, we'll have to do a podcast on this, or several, yeah. <laughs> yeah. coming into the elections. Because, yeah. you know, I, I'm, <laughs> I guess I'm like Mindy, I'm neutral, I just want the success for the United States. I don't yeah. care who gets in, but I think we have to be prepared. And at Rowan, one of the schools that I'm working with, we're considering running full programs in other countries because if we were to get shut out and students couldn't get in, we need to be in places like India on the ground offering academic programming and fortunately the senior leadership there who who also happened to be international students that stayed and now are professors and leaders in these institutions, they see it Mm -hmm. and they're being very smart about um, what they might have to pivot to.
6: Yeah. Sorry, do you mind if I ask Mark about Saudi Arabia? Because we're hearing about the new scholarship programs that they're bringing in, that they want to uh, educate, I think it's a further 70,000 students fully funded by 2030. Do you think that that kind of message means that Saudi numbers are going to come back to, to where they were?
0: It's a good question. I, I'd like to say I hope so. I mean, they very much narrowed the type of school that they're willing to pay for their students to attend, and unfortunately they're using, you know, QS and US News and these places to kind of rank out schools, which I don't I don't think is wise, but it is what it is. But um, There are very specific areas in the Saudi culture that need development. Uh, Mm -hmm. Travel and tourism is one. And they don't have the people uh, on the ground there to be able to do all the things they'd like to do because they want to be a destination. I mean, the last time I was in saudi arabia which was last spring and one of the ministers asked me Mar- mark what's the chance of us hosting the super bowl in the future <laughs> and i kind of laughed and then this whole live golf thing happened Yeah, you know it's like well maybe there is a chance yeah. of that but they need people preferably uh saudi-born people to run these things i mean the you know the great um Effort forward the 2030 plan that you refer to is to remove expats as much as possible and run the country with Saudis. So there, you know, areas I, at Rowan again, we have a, a um, archaeology uh, piece of the institution which now has a dinosaur dig and all of this stuff. Well, Saudi Arabia is rich in you know ancient culture. And they need people properly trained in, you know, fields that we don't talk about much, right? Mm-hmm. We always talk about STEM. You know, how many kids come up to you and go, well, I'd like to study archaeology. Yeah. Well, if the Saudi government is going to pay for someone to do that. They'll. And come.
6: that's what I mean. So you talked about specific rankings and they've narrowed that ranking field. Yeah. But if you have programs that are fulfilling the needs that they have, I think those lists and those rankings don't matter so
0: much. Well, I mean, you look at a school like I, I just saw the folks from UNLV, Nevada, Las Vegas, they have one of the top travel and tourism programs mm-hmm. you know, in the world. The institution as a whole is not going to pop up in your you know, top 10, top 30, mm-hmm. but certainly in that particular field, they're on top. And you know, I would think they would get some of these students, but we need one or two other countries to come back in a big way because we don't know what's gonna happen with India. I mean, look at Canada's having a bit of a hiccup right now with India, and the numbers cool off there, and they would also be in trouble because they're heavily dependent on Indians too. Well,
2: external factors are always very unpredictable, of course, and that ranges from geopolitical changes Uh, sustainability climate in relationships between countries, specific developments and scholarships that are available like you mentioned in in Saudi Arabia, but bring it back to the United States and as a final question for for each of you today, what is your advice for U.S.
6: educational institutions in the context of international student recruitment, uh, Ian? So if I had to add one, it would be to to think long term. I think we've seen a lot of institutions that um, invest in international marketing and expect instant results and you know, unless you're a very specific, well-ranked, well-regarded, a strong brand name institution, it's very difficult to have instant results. You have to build relationships with people over time and nurture those, and I think two to three years before you see results from that nurturing and that's just the reality of it. So you need to get the buy-in from your institution for that level of investment over that period of time and um, and if you're willing, if you're able to get that, then I think you can, you can anyone can be successful if they just dedicate themselves to it long term, consistent
2: long term. Yeah. Diversification, nurture relationships, think long term, Mark.
0: No, I agree with the long term. Frankly, and I say this all the time when I go out at a school's international area, if you're not going to be committed to this long term, not only with money and people, then just go find another place domestically. You know, if you're in the upper Midwest, go down to Texas or come down here to Florida and recruit students, you have to be all in on this and, you know, you you can be relatively um, strategic and how how you go all in, and certainly the agent piece is, I think, an important strategic um, part of this. But the agents that I've seen today who are new to me, it'll take three years to develop that relationship and they will eventually produce. But I'm not expecting to see applications and enrollments come this fall. Uh, And I think part of the problem in the U.S. now, and maybe the world, is our education people from the presidents, the vice presidents all the way on down don't stay anymore. They're coming and going constantly. So any kind of strategic um, partnerships or or longer-term efforts that Ian's talking about if you're only there two or three years, they want instant gratification. Mm-hmm. You know, The recruiter that might, hear, might be here today needs something to happen quickly. The vice president, I think the average vice president enrollment now in the US, less than four years. Average president, not much more than that. So everything is short-term thinking, which goes against exactly what you know, Ian and I uh, agree on. You have to put in the effort.
2: Right, so balancing short-term thinking with long-term yeah. efforts. Any final words on this, Mindy?
5: Yeah, I mean, I would, uh, I would agree on the, on the long-term, you know. Um, we, we take uh, groups of secondary schools and universities down to Brazil every year and do science fairs with them. And so we have 10, 20,000 middle schoolers and high schoolers come to these science fairs and you know the universities show off the cool science stuff that they're doing at at their school um but you're not going to see the you know you're not going to see them enrolling next year right this is five years down the line they're going to remember wow i met this amazing institution that's where i want to go to school and they're going to tell their friends about it and so you need those ambassadors and you need those ambassadors long you know long term Um, in the short term you know i would say u.s Educational institutions need to go to as many ISAF events around the world as Thank they you. can because We agree are, with
2: that, don't we? we? Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
5: they are, I mean, they're, they're the gold yes. standard, right? So you're going to meet, you know, these amazing agents and partners, um, whether it's for study abroad programs or for undergrad, graduate. Um, those are the, the, you know, the partners that you're going to meet are going to be at these at these ICEF events. And then, you know, my practical advice for institutions are use alumni. I, you know, I. You guys probably know this. Like every every year, we're getting like donate twenty five dollars to your alumni association. Okay, okay. Right yes, yeah. stop. It's Christmas. It's, yeah, so it's, I would say institutions stop asking for money for your international. Uh, alumni and ask them for testimonials Mm -hmm. and testimonials that can be put on priceless
2: marketing on youtube Mm. because
5: then people are going to see that and they're going (laughs) to say wow look at that like that person you know went to that university or secondary school and now look at where they are and that's going to bring in them you know alumni are the best you know the best proponents. word of mouth
6: is the cheapest and the most effective form of marketing and yeah. the most difficult sometimes to get. Yeah. But yeah, this is, these are all great. Well, if, if no one likes your institution, yeah. then, then you've got a challenge. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely.
2: Well, these are all great points of, uh, of advice. We love the advice, of course, about coming to an ICEF event <laughs> where, of <laughs> course, you can meet your partners for your long term um, strategy. Talking about long term and short term, in the short term, you will have to go back to your meetings. So thank you so much, Mark, Mindy and Ian, for your contributions on this uh, interesting topic on the world's most popular study destination, the USA. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Up next, Keys to the Market, where this month we focus on India, Punjab. We'll start with a brief message from our Keys to the Market sponsor, Western Overseas, the best immigration consultants to transform your dreams into reality.
7: Since its inception in 2004, Western Overseas Study Abroad has been a group of professional immigration lawyers in Australia and regulated Canadian immigration consultants in Canada. We are seeking the most brilliant and talented students to study in Australia, Canada, New Zealand, the United States, the United Kingdom and Europe among other countries. Western Overseas has strengthened its foundation and is now operating across India, Australia and Canada. Through its network of 15 branches, with over 750 universities and colleges in overseas partnerships, 10,000 student success stories, a 95% success record for study visas, and the confidence of 11 million students, we are proud to have over 250 trained career counsellors. We provide services such as coaching for foreign languages in German and French, preparation programs for IELTS, PTE, Duolingo and others, but also study permits for all nations, PR assistance, visiting permits, business immigration, career guidance, choosing a course and a country. You can find more information at www.western-overseas.com.
2: Often when we discuss India from a student recruitment perspective, we are reminded by our partners and colleagues in the subcontinent that India is like a world of its own with 28 states and eight union territories, each with their own languages, cultures, economies and characteristics. It's worthwhile, therefore, to zoom in on the specifics of distinct Indian regions, and this month we're looking at Punjab. So Punjab, which means the land of the rivers, is located in the northwestern part of the Indian subcontinent. It has a border with Pakistan and Hindi is the most spoken language. Punjab is one of the most prosperous states in India and its population of 27 million is comparable to that of Australia, for example. What else can you tell us, Craig, about Punjab from a student recruitment perspective?
3: To start at the start, I think we have to acknowledge that that over the course of 2022 and 23, India has become a true driver of growth in global student mobility. It's a a massive market, and as you point out, it's best understood as a a very complex, multifaceted marketplace uh, with significant differences in student uh, preferences and requirements from, from one part of the country to another. So it's, you know, as we've come to understand about China, for example, It's a, uh, you can't think of it as just one market with a shared, you know, set of common characteristics. It's much more nuanced and complex than that. So Punjab, as you say, in the north is loomed large, I think, in the minds of of, of student recruiters for some time now, because it tends to send a disproportionate number of students abroad. If you look at the total number of Indian students that are going abroad, significant percentage uh, for some uh, major study destinations, as many as, as half of the students that go to, you know, a given destination come from Punjab. And the other thing that's interesting about that's this particular state is that the demand for study abroad among Punjabi students is very much informed by uh, larger goals of pursuing career opportunities and migration opportunities abroad. And so when we look at, you know, the nature of Indian demand and more broadly, again, it tends to be very agile. Right, so it, it it the Indian students will change destination preferences, and you'll see that demand shifting quickly in response to, you know, to the, in particular to the extent that things like work rights or postgraduate settlement rights become more or less restricted at a given destination. You know, when the UK reintroduced the uh, the uh, postgraduate uh, route uh, work rights a couple of years ago. We saw a surge in, in in student flows from India to the UK, and the same is true for Canada and other major destinations as well. And it's interesting to look at the nature of demand in Punjab and see that that's a, such an important driver there. Right? It's not true for all international students, but for students from Punjab, it certainly is.
2: I find it quite impressive to see how one state in India has a larger pool of prospective international students than many of the more prominent source countries in our industry.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's, we're talking about a state, it's not even like, you know, in the top 10 most populous states in India, it's probably about the 15th or 16th most populous, you know, but it's, it's got, I mean, it's a large population, it's, we're talking about, you know, mid 30 million people plus or minus, right? So it's a, it's a significant population base, limited opportunities for uh, access to quality higher education in the state. And so students are especially motivated to study abroad wonderful
2: well we'll be discussing more uh, states and territories of india in in many of our episodes uh, to come if you are looking to recruit students from india and punjab in particular then you can find qualified and carefully screened punjabi student recruitment agencies at one of our upcoming of events especially of south asia in february but also at ISAF Berlin in November, for example. For more information, you can visit isaf.com slash events. Uh, thank you, Craig. And uh, thanks again to our guest speakers, Mark Kopansky, Mindy Herzog, and our colleague, Ian Can. And for many of our listeners, the holiday season is approaching. So on behalf of all of us here at ISAF, we wish you happy holidays and a lot of success into the new year. And we hope you'll tune in again in the ISAF podcast in 2024.
1: For more information about the topics we've discussed in this episode, please visit isefmonitor.com. And don't forget to share your feedback and questions with us directly via podcast at isef.com. This episode was sponsored by International Education Evaluation. Our Keys to the Market sponsor was Western Overseas.